What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to Experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Julia Turner, and this is the Slate Culture Gabfest Recrimination in the Cranberry Sauce Edition. It's Wednesday, November 22nd, 2017. On today's show, we'll talk about The Good Place, the relatively new sitcom from Mike Schur, creator of Parks and Recreation, starring Ted Danson and Kristen Bell, uh, and a bunch of moral philosophy in a show about heaven and people trying to be good. It's unlikely sounding. It's Metcalf bait. We're going to discuss it. Uh, Then we'll be joined by wonderful podcaster and sometimes Slate Culture Gabfest guest, Karina Longworth, hostess of You Must Remember This, to talk about Charles Manson. And finally, Hall of Fame Slate Culture Gabfest producer Dan Pashman, host of The Sporkful, Uh, has attempted a unilateral disarmament of the food media and Thanksgiving. He thinks maybe the foodie press, of whom he is uh, a stalwart, should just stop covering Thanksgiving. We'll take up this fascinating idea with Danny Pash in our third segment today. Some notes on sound and hosting today. There have been technical difficulties. That means that Steve could not host. You'll hear he's on a slightly crackly line, and we couldn't subject you to that for all of the interstitial bits, just the meat. So Dana and I flipped a coin, and it landed squarely on its edge. So we're splitting the duties. I am recording this intro and our outro and a few interstitial bits, but Dana will be driving the conversation within the segments Uh, We hope you find this change refreshing. We'll be back to regular programming next week with Mr. Metcalf firmly in charge. Uh, All right. Shall we commence? All right. So the innovative NBC sitcom The Good Place has just gone into midseason hiatus on its second season. We've been talking about talking about it ever since it began because I feel like this is a buzzed about show in a very niche way. It's sort of I keep hearing it talked about, including on Slate, as the sitcom that philosophy majors will love. So, of course, I can't wait to hear what Stephen Metcalf has to say about it. But first, we should listen to a clip. It's from the first season. And you will hear the voices of Kristen Bell, who plays the main character, Eleanor Shellstrop. And William Jackson Harper, who plays Chidi, uh, who was an ethics and moral philosophy professor in life and has now been assigned to be Eleanor's soulmate for the afterlife. Eleanor, I have spent my entire life in pursuit of fundamental truths about the universe. And now we can actually learn about them together as soulmates. It's overwhelming. Chidi. You'll stand by my side no matter what, right? Of course I will. Promise me. Say, I promise I will never betray you for any reason. Eleanor, I swear that I will never say or do anything to cause you any harm. Good. Because those aren't my memories. I wasn't a lawyer. I never went to the Ukraine. I hate clowns. There's been a big mistake. I'm not supposed to be here. Wait, what? 
All right. So, Steve, as our philosopher in residence, I want to know what you think of this show and uh, and whether you will stick with it and tell other people to do so. Uh, I, I really like the show. Uh, I really admire it. I think it's very clever. And um, I binged season one. I just finished the first two episodes of season two and will absolutely watch it through uh, through uh, what's available now for streaming and then follow it you know, uh, 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 on from there. One thing I'll note about the philosophy is that quite typically in like Woody Allen movies or other kind of, you know, comic, you know, comedies, there's a, you know, there can be like a name dropping attitude towards high culture. And so, you know, I mean, Allen being sort of the worst offender loves to throw in references to Kierkegaard and um, fill in the blank. And, um, and um, this show, I think, certainly went beyond that. So there's a whole section, sort of middle section of the first season where, you know, this woman's gotten into heaven on a clerical error. She's actually a quite mean-spirited, self-centered person who doesn't deserve to be there. And she's paired with her soulmate, who's this sort of wonderfully generous um, uh, moral and ethical philosophy professor Dana, as you say. And, and when he learns her secret, he starts to tutor her in philosophy in order to make her a better person, in order to possibly earn her way into heaven. And as a result, they bond and they become quite fond of each other and the show is off and running. I thought that that was the meat of season one and was handled actually incredibly well. Like everything he throws up on the blackboard, to my memory, you know, actually turns out to be what these philosophers said. There's like when they do kind of this name droppy thing, they take it to the next level and they, they summarize ideas in this really pithy, really funny way. The actual meat of the episode tends to be about the philosophical issue that um, Chidi is trying to teach her about. Uh, it was really definitely done. I do feel as though they've started. They start to lose it towards the end of season one, like like you know, like you know, on purpose. They just don't make it the heart of the series anymore. And so far, in the first two episodes of season two, it's almost completely not there. Though it may make its way back in. So that aspect of it is actually quite satisfying. I did not sit there feeling as though fingernails were being drawn across the blackboard of my snobbery, of my philosophical snobbery. <laughs> at all. Um, not even one time. But what I really like about it is the writing is super, super sharp. The premise is really clever. Uh, and the performance is terrific. I mean, they, they really, you know, they really did a good job, um, you know, taking, I mean, essentially what this, this, and I'll throw it to you, Julia, next, but to me what this sitcom is, is it's a kind of response to the era of sitcomery that was initiated with Seinfeld, where the premise is the self-centeredness and cruelty and indifference to others of the central characters, which has found its expression in so many different sitcoms. And the question is, I mean, the problem really facing a, a showrunner is you've got this style of comedic writing, which now legions of, you know, young people are, are good at producing, right? You can, you, this, it's, it's, you know, this kind of snide, meta, ironic, delivery pattern is, 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 it's like, it's like wallpaper now. You can churn it out. But, you know, it, the moment, like a cultural moment has happened, like a, the flex, you know, a sort of turning point has happened. And I don't think, you know, we have a president who's the worst of that type of human being and is in the process of destroying the world. Like, this was a new place to use it and take it. Like, are these people capable of reform? What made them who they are? Um, they just did a great job of making it fresh. That's so interesting. A, the idea that Seinfeld is to blame for the Trump presidency, but B, the the famous line about Seinfeld, the kind of insight that, that Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld had when they were making it was no hugs, no lessons, right? Or no hugs, mm-hmm. no learning. I forget. I think, I think no hugs, no lessons. This show is like explicitly about lessons in pursuit of being literally a good person, which is 
it almost uh, it's so high concept that it 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 feels like a stunt almost. Like, could you make a a funny network half hour about the pursuit of moral betterment? Like, and the answer is yes, actually, you can, and it's a testament to. The casting, largely. I mean, Kristen Bell is great. She's just yeah, she she she, she and Ted Danson both, I think, are like television magicians in a way, like just people who you want to be in their presence, but they have a tart prickliness to them, so it doesn't become too cloying. Um, which is really, I mean, that that's I think the the key to being like a great television performer is providing like comfort and. Um, fresh tart vinegar at the same time. Uh, and in, in a funny way, she's playing uh, she's playing Sam, right? She's like the lovable schmuck at the heart of the show, which is what he was on Cheers. And the Ted Danson role is very complicated and becomes increasingly complicated uh, with the reveals that happen at the end of season one and the beginning of season two. But uh, their their performances are both great. They're the two most famous people on the show. But I also think the other less known performers among them, William Jackson Harper, are are great. So you have this ensemble that works. I will confess that amongst all the lessons, the laugh ratio is definitely down from like a 30 Rock or a really high density joke show or even Mike Schur's previous show, Parks and Recreation, which was also a network half hour about a good person trying to do good in the world, right? Leslie Nope was fundamentally an earnest striver towards moral betterment in her own way. Um, but that was a show that kind of packed on classic sitcom laughs in a in a typical way. I did start this show last year and watch a few episodes and be like, I respect that. But then I didn't like pick up the remote and continue watching it. Um but then it was one of those shows that kind of we kept hearing the the buzz about that it was getting better and better and that pe- people were feeling like it was worth revisiting. And so I went back and watched, you know, most of the end of season one and all that exists of season two so far. There's a gigantic kind of plot turn with the landing of the first season and the uh, dawning of the second one that makes it seem like this show has many more tricks up its sleeve. Yeah, when 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 that big twist happens at the end of the first season, I really while I'm not sure that I will keep on watching this show, I really respect it for being so daring and so absolutely different from anything else that's on the air. In a way, it surprises me not only that this is a network sitcom on a just a major broadcast network, but that it has a following, not because it's not good, but because it it has such a curious rhythm. Like you say, it's not all about piling up laughs sitcom style, although it does have some really sharp funny dialogue. And it also, I mean, you know the expression bottle episode, right? Where where characters are sort of secluded in one space for the entirety of an episode. And once in a while, you know, these bottle episodes will be thrown into a season. I mean, this show is nothing but bottle episodes in a way. It has this curious static feeling where it almost always takes place within one or two rooms. There's not a lot of exterior space or really the sense of an outside world, which the more you watch the show makes sense as you start to learn the rules of this heaven-like place. Um, but there's a kind of a static nature to it, which you which really comes through when you're watching on Hulu or someplace where there aren't commercial breaks, because after every commercial or where the commercial would be, everyone is standing in the same place in the same interior room. So there's something a little bit claustrophobic and theatrical about it, which isn't unappealing, but which is very unusual for television and seems like it would turn more people off than it does. Yeah, the show that it reminds me of most actually is Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, not in any of the particulars. It doesn't have the same themes. There's no songs that I've seen. Um, 
but in that it's sort of halfway between a comedy and a drama. It's like light but serious and tart and sharp but earnest. Um, it's it's its own particular brew, and it does feel to me like it's a testament of this particular moment in television that this show exists. I don't actually think its ratings are juggernaut for NBC particularly, but I think even the big networks recognize that if they want to compete with kind of the the whole mass of cable and streaming television at this point, you have to let a few weird and distinctive flowers bloom to be in the conversation. Yeah, I wouldn't expect it to be a juggernaut hit. I'm surprised that it's done well enough to stay on the air at all. It just seems like it's it's such a niche interest that it would be something that would be more likely to be on a streaming network. No, it's literally like philosophy class. I mean, it's like a philosophy class that meets with Metcalf standards, just right. like on TV. <laughs> you just killed it. <laughs> Here's my question to you. Do you think the show's doing interesting thinking about what makes people good and better and redemption and all the rest of it? Like, it's one thing to kind of engage the idea seriously and, and do more than hand wave at Heidegger or whatever, but but does the show like advance our understanding at all or or push any buttons in a particularly interesting or surprising way, Steve? Ooh, I think that's a great question because it, it did occur to me while I was watching it, right? I mean, you know, we've been afflicted by this question of where the causal determinative factors that made you who you were, right? Your parents, your social class, your race, your gender, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The things over which it can categorically be said you had no control and and your volition and therefore moral responsibility begins. And a lot of a person's worldview is determined by where they draw that line. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's a question that afflicts every major re- religion. It, you know, Western philosophy has tried to pick it up and at least somewhat you know, illuminate us relative to it. And and it's not just an esoteric problem, right? I mean, you apply that framework for trying to understand why anyone does something evil or wicked or ends up, you know, poor or criminal. And, you know, I don't think a television show can really grapple with that. I mean, there's a, there are gestures to it. There's a moment in the first season where we see uh, Kristen Bell's childhood is miserable because of a couple of parents who were massively indifferent to her as a human being. I mean, it's comical. It's taken to a total extreme, like they don't remember. I mean, it's, it's beyond not remembering her birthday. It's like they have total disregard for her as a human being. And the show is saying... You know, obviously, this person end, ended up is massively damaged. I mean, it's if you really try to look to its human level, setting aside its philosophical level, it's it's about this person's complete inability to connect with other people or trust other people, and everything she does is a defense against being crushed the way her parents crushed her. But in the next breath in that episode, she says, "You know, I have to now become the person who no longer uses that as a crutch or an excuse," which you know, I don't, I don't. I don't know that that's necessarily deep, but I don't know that for not being deep, it's also not sort of true. And in, in the con, you know, in the confines of a sitcom that's actually quite funny and engaging as a sitcom, like that's that's pretty remarkable. Yeah, I'm gonna keep watching it. I became totally hooked, and I think if you like me, thought I liked Parks and Rec, let me try that guy's new show, and then you tried it, and we're like, mm, I would encourage you to go back to it. I definitely think it's 
unusual, distinctive, and good. If only for Ted Danson alone. I don't think there's any show Ted Danson is in that isn't worth watching. I have to say in this year of reading shocking things on Twitter, probably a top five shocking thing I read is like a person saying that Ted Danson was bad. Like someone was just like, we can all agree we hate Ted Danson, right? And was like oh trying gosh. to get a Twitter thing going. <laughs> and I was like, what's wrong with you? Like, who are you? He's a national I'm... treasure. The guy's been terrific at every phase in his career in every platform. I mean. I It was astounding. I mean, I'm not one to like round up the Twitter posse and hound people uh, in in the horrible manner of the modern internet. But if ever I were going to do it. When you're too contrarian for the editor of Slate, you know you're going down the wrong path. <laughs> I'm sorry, but that is just like an unacceptable Slate pitch. There's no Slate pitching Ted Danson. He's just a force for good, people. I won't have it. You're here. All right. Well, the show is The Good Place. It's on hiatus right now, but you can see the first season in various streaming platforms online. And uh, yeah, if you're at all intrigued by our conversation, catch up so you can jump in in the second midseason. Give it a look and see what you think. Tell us at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right. Yes, we do have business today. All right. Well, first, we want to tell you about a new Slate show. Take it away, Dana. Oh, yes. This has been entrusted to me because of my dubious knowledge of Spanish via knowing a couple other romance you languages. You have like a doctorate in romance languages. Not Pero this el one. Español? No. It's closer, all right, than anyway, what Steve I, and I can achieve. I am legitimately excited about this show, so maybe it makes sense for me to do the read for that reason. So I heard this announced on a in a little promotion on Trumpcast, which I listen to religiously, and I'm excited to listen to this for the first time, if only to test out my Spanish. The new Slate show is El Gabfest en Español. El Gabfest en Español is Slate's first Spanish-language podcast. It's led by the award-winning Mexican journalist, broadcaster, and writer Leon Krause, with Fernando Pizarro, who is the Washington correspondent for Univision affiliate stations, and Ariel Mutsatsos, the Washington correspondent for Noticieros Televisa. Their emphasis will be on U.S. politics and current events, but they'll also discuss international news as well as sports and culture, and there'll be an English-language segment for Plus listeners, essentially their first topic reconsidered in English. So check out El Gabfest en Español on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm so excited that we are doing this. It's been fun, particularly just to see the headlines for each episode pop up on Slate. And we just have a couple Spanish headlines on Slate every week now promoting the show. Uh, we've been really excited about the feedback so far. The show has really strong listenership for a new show, which I think uh, indicates how underserved the Spanish language podcast market is. Um, but we're also getting a ton of notes from people for whom Spanish is not a first or entirely fluent language saying that it's, as you were saying, Dana, like just a great way to uh, get the Spanish speaking parts of their brains turned back on uh, and experience a different kind of media. Especially because they're discussing topics that well, you'd already be familiar with if you're a listener to the political gab fest in English or just a reader of the news. Yeah. So anyway, we're we're really excited about this project. I hope you will all check it out. Also, heads up that we are doing our yearly call-in show. So if you have questions you want to ask us, please leave a message at 929-266-4914. Dana, what is your favorite question that we've ever been asked by our listeners for a call-in show? I don't know if I can re reconstitute the question, but I know my favorite call-in show we ever did. And you're going to know which one it was. The one we recorded at Mohonk Mountain House during a retreat a few years ago when for some reason we were all hungover and loopy and giggly and there was laughing and crying and remembering of childhood favorite books. Oh, yeah. It was when you got when I when I discovered that my rosebud was uh, Need a House Called Ms. Mouse. <laughs> and I was describing this book about a mouse architect and you just thought I was high. 
<laughs> and you started to cry, as I remember. It was it was a wonderful experience for us all. See if you can make us cry, team. What <laughs> questions can you send us that will prompt tears of laughter and giddiness? Uh, I feel like last year when we recorded the show, we did it with um, cocktails. Maybe we'll try and do that again. Yeah, maybe a late afternoon with a bottle of wine. Yeah, we'll get try, us we'll, we'll try and, and get a little looped for you. So we'll be we'll be susceptible. Ask us anything. Nine two nine two six six four nine one four. Very much looking forward to that. Finally, in Slate Plus today, we're asking Dan Pashman, former producer and all around Slate Culture Gabfest All Star, to stick around and join us in discussing what we're thankful for. To hear segments like that and get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus is our membership program and is a great way to support Slate and all the journalism that we do. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gab Fest and your other favorite Slate shows. And, of course, in return, you'll get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate shows and a ton of other great benefits. So if you'd like to support the Culture Gab Fest, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. All right, back to it. All right, joining us for our next segment is Karina Longworth, the host of the wonderful podcast, You Must Remember This, about Hollywood and history. She did a wonderful series on Charles Manson and his peculiar place in Hollywood culture and at the end of the 60s. Karina, thanks so much for joining us today. Hi. Karina, I'm curious. Manson died earlier this week, and I'm wondering whether the reflections on his death or news of it have changed the way you've thought about him or, or the work that you did in telling his story. I, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't feel any differently about him now than I ever did. Um, I've, you know, especially through doing the research, I just, I feel like my point of view on Charles Manson is that he was a con man who manipulated a lot of people and he wasn't a satanic mastermind as like the Hollywood reporter headline, or I I think it was the Hollywood reporter headline had out to be, um, he wasn't even satanic there was like a really funny thing where the church of Satan tweeted out, like he was not one of us. Um, <laughs> Even they don't want him. Yeah. They don't want him. Um, I guess the thing that's been interesting over the past 24 hours is like, there's sort of usually when somebody famous dies, like RIP, like we'll miss you gone too soon, even if they're in their eighties. Um, and then there's like a backlash. And with Charles Manson, it's like, we are all united in saying like good riddance, I'm glad this guy's dead. Um, he was not beneficial to us in any way. And there's a kind of catharsis in that, I think, that everybody can be like, good, he's dead. Yeah, to have a figure that can just be kind of wholesomely reviled and not not resuscitated or re- yeah. rehabilitated in any mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. But that, Karina, am I wrong? There's another aspect to him as well, which is that, you know, he becomes this folk devil in part because he extracts the worst part of each of us in American society and took them unto himself. I mean, one of the things I took away from your really, truly majestic series on Manson was that, you know, the 60s, the 70s, Hollywood, the Beatles, rock music, racism, Easy Rider, Summer of Love, Altamont, like all of these things achieved a kind of perfect exorcism in Manson and the Manson murders. You know, can you can you talk a little bit about that? Like he's he's kind of banal in himself, but he's satanic because of everything that we're projecting on and through him in a weird way. I almost feel like on behalf of the Church of Satan, like let's stop calling him satanic. <laughs> um, but I mean, yeah, certainly, like he he serves as a, like a fulcrum, I guess, um, 
uh, like a catalyst for like certain anxieties that were already in the air and certain transformations that were already happening. Um, and it's, you know, what I tried to do in the podcast series was talk about how Hollywood was already kind of going through these transitions and, you know, due to things that had started in the 1940s when the movie studios were forced to sell their stakes in their movie theaters and they had to completely figure out a new business model. And that led to this long, that and television and the rise of a new generation of kids who were not interested in the same things that their parents were interested in led to basically Hollywood, you know, in the form of movie studios, record companies, you know, people in power scrambling to figure out how to appeal to new generations of audiences. And that, you know, opened a little bit of a window for people like Charles Manson. Um, and then, you know, in the, the, the aftermath of that, you do get like this, very brief wave in Hollywood where um, there was a different type of filmmaking and a, a less overtly commercial type of filmmaking. Yeah, I mean, something else that, that really comes out in reading all the obituaries of Manson and, and also in your series is how tied up he was with, with pop music of the time and how there could not have been a Charles Manson or the cult around Charles Manson without the Beatles, without Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys without, in, in general, the whole figure of the kind of rock and roll cult of personality god that Charles Manson sort of tried to make himself into without any of the career or any of the talent. I, I guess I guess it, that's fair to say in that um, these things did become part of his power. Um, you know, he could like basically be like, well, look, Dennis Wilson, a Beach Boy, like he hangs out with me. So like, there, I must be special. He could say that to these girls at he attracted and, and that he brainwashed. Um, and then because of something like that, like, I guess they were maybe more prone to believe him when he said the Beatles are talking to me and telling me to fight a race war on their behalf. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's hard to say like if he would have been able to do everything that he managed to do, what like without these other, you know, like rock and roll, touchstones that he sort of glommed onto. I mean, I guess it's possible that he could have woven the same myths out of some other sort of pop cultural figures, but it seems like it would have to be someone who has that kind of godlike sovereignty that rock and roll in the 60s assumed for itself. Well, I just think he was an opportunist and he like he took what opportunities like landed in his lap and milked them. And it, it could have been something else, but the fact that it, it was like these, these rock, sort of rock and roll icons like made him powerful to a certain group of people, like these disenfranchised teenage girls in particular. You know, well, Karina, it strikes me that, that, you know, many of our listeners have probably listened to your series because I think each of us has endorsed it at a different point at the moment when we discovered it and became entranced by it as sort of the perfect way to, I mean, for me, you know, Charlie Manson is like a totemic word in the culture, but it was not a story that I knew deeply or understood. And, and your podcast was the way into it for me. Um, but I'm curious, especially for our listeners who haven't yet listened, when you were making that show, what, what were the things that surprised you most as you dug into the research? Like what, um, what did you think it was going to be about going in and what did you discover as you learned? Well, I, I kind of try not to think about what something's going to be about before I start like other than just in the vaguest way, you know, and the the thing that brought me into um, doing that season was that I was just like watching TCM one night and 
there was a Doris Day movie on, and I realized that I didn't know much about Doris Day's personal life. So I went, I think I went on her Wikipedia page or her obituary, and there was like one line that was like, and her son like was associate an associate of Charles Manson, and some people think that when his family members went to Sharon Tate's house that night, they were looking for Doris Day's son. And then I was like, whoa, <laughs> you know, like who, who knew? Uh, obviously some people knew, but I didn't know. So um, that made me, that was the first thing that made me interested in this idea that like you could draw a straight line from Doris Day to Charlie Manson. And that would say something about Hollywood's transition from like this sort of 1950s, you know, um, uh, portrait of like what America should be, I guess, or an idealized you know, sort of very clean cut, wholesome image, like through the 1960s and how that all sort of falls apart and decays. And then you get these 1970s films that are just kind of about despair and disillusionment being made by major studios. Um, So that was, that was what I went into it going in. And then, um, you know, just like through doing research on Manson, I was able to like pull out all these other connections to different filmmakers and different characters in Hollywood and different, things that were happening at the time to kind of create a portrait of of Los Angeles and Hollywood and the, the entertainment industry like in the late 60s. And so, um, yeah, basically it started out with a surprise and like everything that followed was a surprise too. That's an amazing connection. My favorite surprise listening to it was uh, was the, the Candace Bergen cameo, um, having, mm-hmm. having grown up admiring her powerful Murphy Brown. She does not have as quite as admirable a cameo in the story as I recall from your telling. Yeah. Yeah, she was Terry Melcher, Doris Day's son's girlfriend, um, and and she's like she wrote quite a bit um, about this time period and all of that, like in her in one of her two memoirs, um, which is are a fascinating read. Um, another person who is surprising that um, pops up on the periphery of the story is Angela Lansbury, whose disaffected teenage daughter like spent some time with the Manson family, and they basically like used her mom's credit cards until Angela Lansbury cut her off. Well, Karina, I'm not going to say RIP. I'm just going to say, I guess, good riddance. And thank you so much for coming on to talk with us about Charles Manson. Sure. Um, I just wanted to note that um, if people haven't listened to this series and they want to find it, we just put it in a new feed of its own in iTunes. So you can go and look for it. It's called You Must Remember Manson. Um, and it's it's all 12 episodes just right there. Oh, yeah. I really, really encourage people to go and listen to that. It really is an incredible story that that brings in, as we were saying, almost every thread you can imagine from the pop culture of the time. Thanks so much, Karina. Thank you. So it's Thanksgiving week, the favorite holiday of some, the dreaded holiday of those who write and podcast on food. We're joined by one such friend today, a super friend of the program, Dan Pashman, our erstwhile producer and the host of the podcast, The Sporkful. Hello, Dan. Hey, guys. Good to see you. Dan, on last week's edition of The Sporkful, you had some well-known food writers, including Christopher Kimball of Cooks Illustrated and Mimi Sheraton, the great cookbook author, to talk about their experiences with Thanksgiving, unusual Thanksgivings they've had, and whether, in general, food writers have had it up to here with Thanksgiving. It sounded to me, listening to this, like you were the person who needed to be 
really laid down on a couch and interviewed about your relationship <laughs> to Thanksgiving. <laughs> because what you were proposing to all these food writers was that we just stop trying to innovate, that essentially we just all settle on the Thanksgiving that we've all eaten since we were nine years old, and that whatever your particular favorite memory of Thanksgiving is, you should just cook that food over and over again. And you essentially said, I, Dan Pashman, host of the Sporkful, am desisting henceforth from ever doing a special Thanksgiving program. This is my last you, one. You called a unilateral ceasefire. That's you, right. you tried to recruit some allies. <laughs> They were not having it. <laughs> yeah. But nine was, I think, the age that you that you cited. And in fact, you talked about having children. Your kids are a little younger than that, I believe, right? Yeah, four and, and seven. Four and seven. And that you're trying to, right now, you're trying to indoctrinate them with the Thanksgiving memories that you want to, them to have, specifically so that when they're grown up, they will come back to your house and not to their in-laws for Thanksgiving. Right, which is clearly something I have total control over. Um. <laughs> well, if you get the food right. That's right. <laughs> And I thought Christopher Kimball, I mean, who obviously is an extremely exacting cook, that's sort of the nature of his whole brand, right, um, was was very convincing at, about it not mattering what you make for Thanksgiving, which was kind of wonderful to hear coming from the mouth of someone who says type A is Christopher who Kimball. we should note is formerly of Cooks Illustrated and now of... Milk Street Kitchen. Yes. Yes. Ah, I didn't realize that, that he had not just expanded his brand, but actually hopped over to a whole different That's business. actually the subject of a lawsuit. Yes, there's, yeah. there's, yeah, do you just don't poke that bear? <laughs> Dana is now a party to congratulations. <laughs> yes, he is with Milk Street Kitchen. And I should uh, disclose that I am a contributor to Milk Street Radio, his podcast. I uh, will allow it. <laughs> All right. I Can I just say, Dan? Yes. So, uh, with love to everyone seated at this table with me, every so often, annually, some might say, our slate's excellent, top class, brilliant movie critic will sometimes lament, ah, oh, making the year in review lists. It's so tough. I don't want to make the 10 best lists of the year. She always does it. She's a consummate pro, but, <laughs> but lamentations can be heard if you listen closely. And then also the Oscar coverage. Similarly, it's like, okay, every year we got to gear up. Time to make the, the donuts. The, pose, the dresses, the da 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 Thanksgiving is your Oscars, man. You're in the food media. You just got to do it. Suck it up. Just give us, tell us how to spatchcock. Well, <laughs> I, I guess part of where I'm coming from, you know, it's not just that I don't know that I creatively have anything new or interesting to say about Thanksgiving after all these years. I'm not convinced that anybody really wants it. You know, like I, the Oscars are different every year. It's new movies to talk about, <laughs> and, and and at least a handful of new actors and actresses, hopefully, and directors. Um, uh, whereas Thanksgiving is just the same every year, and, and I want it to be the same. And I think that most of us deep down want it to be the same, but yet we are pulled by the 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 bright flashing light of the new, in and it draws us in. Like, oh, maybe I should be covering my turkey with ground tea. Maybe that will be delicious. Maybe I'm doing it wrong. That did sound good. <laughs> that, what, that was Christopher Kimball's. His 34, 34 years, he said he's had to come up with 34 different turkey recipes, and that's this year's. This latest one was crushed lapsang sushang and salt. Yeah, yeah. A, a rub, yeah. Anyway, um, but, right. So, and, and did that make you feel pressure, Julia, to change or somehow up your turkey game? I see what you mean, that there's sort of like a um, – that, 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 
being in the food media must feel like when you're bicycling up uphill and you've got the bike in one of those gears where you're like pedaling so fast and only gaining like one centimeter per nine revolutions of your knees. Um, because not everybody wants to make a gig- uh, the the point of Thanksgiving is not like voila look at my look at my new sous vide tools look at my skills I made something you've never tasted before fundamentally you want comfort right however I would say that it is not true that everybody makes their Thanksgiving exactly the way they made it when they were nine I think there is evolution in what people make for Thanksgiving every year it's just tectonic. It's glacial. It's happening really slowly. There's a couple things that have to be stable that are staples, and then there's a couple things that can can change or shift. And so some subset of the audience wants change for some subset of the things they're cooking. Maybe they always make the turkey the same way, and they just look at all the brining and spatchcocking and lapsang souchonging <laughs> and think like, those are for other people. But they see that tasty-looking apple fennel salad that was in the Times, and they think, oh, crispy and crunchy at the table. Hmm, that could be an interesting compliment to those uh, soggy green beans. Yeah, I think that's fair. I'm, I'm not going to say that, that that my Thanksgiving or anyone's Thanksgiving, that we all want to stay identical. You're right that it's tectonic, but that's sort of a natural evolution. And I think that there's already exponentially more quote-unquote new ideas than there needs to be for that tectonic evolution to take place. And I guess really what upsets me is that, and this happens with a lot of things, is is that, especially with media today, is that um, the, the surface promise is we're going to show you all these new techniques and new tips and new recipes, and it's going to make you happier, it's going to make your life better, and it's going to make your Thanksgiving better. And really what it's doing more of is provoking anxiety and uh, feelings of inferiority and stress because it's making you think that something you're doing isn't right or it isn't good enough and there's a better way if only you would work work harder or Google a little bit more or read 27 more lists. And that is what I'm trying to fight against, you know, because I think that if you want to have the optimal Thanksgiving experience, you should follow Chris Kimball's advice, which is don't stress so much about the food. Like, it'll be fine. Relax and be with your family. And if you do that, you're going to have a nice holiday and create a good memory. I mean, I think Thanksgiving, let's recall its roots in um, people sitting down to a meaninglessly symbolic feast, even though they feel a deep mutual tribal hatred for one another (laughs) that will end in genocide. (laughs) Yes. Okay. That was my big big laugh line for the show. (laughs) I'm in trouble. I mean, my point being that, that... there's a there's actually a fixed and this is my philosophy of life in general there's sort of a fixed reserve of grief and recrimination that's um that in terms of quantity and depth and intensity is only so variable and if you can take a lot of it and spend it on your chutneys and your um you know whipped potato and um whether or not to brine the turkey or add lapsong shushong to it then there's actually less left over for the real locus of anxiety in the ritual, which is um, the reserve of resentment and hatred family members feel for one another. Oh, so, so your bit you're, is not working apparently. No, no, I, I think it's interesting. You're positing that the food acts as this sort of like magnet for negative emotions, and if you can can 
pump all of, of your recriminations into your cranberry sauce that maybe you'll be able to get along with your family a little better. Yeah, you're looking for this kind of third thing that in in itself is relatively neutral to absorb the anxiety about the holiday. And so getting fretful about the food is one way of maybe, um, you know, deflecting, or, um, you know, from what kind of the cliche now is about Thanksgiving, which is that, that you know, people are afraid of talking about politics, that, that all kinds of family neuroses come to the surface. I don't know. It's just a theory. I also think, like, anxious cooks are going to be anxious about Thanksgiving. Anxious people are going to be anxious about Thanksgiving and calm people are going to make what they usually make and then see one recipe go by about apple fennel salad and think, huh, that sounds delicious. Maybe we should make that. And then email it to her mother and have her mother say, maybe we can try that the weekend after. (laughs) And then that's fine. Are you you speaking from experience, Julia? Oh, just an example. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so okay, I like Steve's theory. I think that's a good theory that that in some ways the kitchen can be a place to hide during Thanksgiving. You're like, oh, oh, gotta check the base. Sorry, like gotta absent myself from whatever's happening in the living room. Um, Here's a second theory. Thanksgiving is uh, the greatest, but it has this fundamental flaw at its core, which is the turkey. Like the vision of Thanksgiving with the beautiful roasted turkey, everyone in the food media seems to have come to agree. And it seems to have been like the primary subject of food media for the last 20 years has been like what to do about the turkey, right? Like can you can you get it to deliciousness through brining? Can you solve the dryness of the white meat compared to the moistness? You know, like fundamentally it is impossible to cook a bird in the oven uh, and have it come out looking like Norman Rockwell and also have it be delicious. And that feels like it's been kind of the central, you know, the Gordian knot of Thanksgiving food media and everybody's resolved it in different ways and people think they have their secret solutions and whatever. I would posit, forget about the turkey. The turkey is a second plate. You got the plate, then you put the turkey on the plate, but the point of Thanksgiving is all the sides, the harvest, the stuff that you grew, the cornucopia, the things that you would actually put in the gigantic conical thing on the front of the table that the earth sprouted forth, not the bird, because you can kill a bird any time of year. Um, and so that that's the part that feels like uh, sound and fury signifying nothing to me. It's like, yeah, your turkey is probably going to be a little bit dry. It's okay. Put some gravy on it. See, that makes me feel very smug because our family for the last at least three or four years, I think, has been doing coco vin instead of turkey. And it's so much better. And that is what's forming in my kid's brain. That's what she's going to remember and come back for when she's 30. Wait, taught. Say more. It's the recipe from a book called All About Braising, which we only use once a year to make cocoa van. But I think it's a really good cookbook because this is a beautiful recipe. I think my mom gave me that cookbook. I think I have it. It's sort of like a mauve. I don't know. In my, no, in my edition, it's more sort of greenish, but all okay. about braising. Yeah, yeah, try the cocoa van recipe. It's it's also a big enough deal that it makes you feel Thanksgiving-like and important. I mean, it does sort of take a whole day of cooking and pre-cooking, and it's better if you make it the day before. And so you can pride yourself in preen just as much as if you were roasting a big turkey. But you see, Dana, this is why you need to continue to cover the Oscars and do your top 10 list, because you are such a rebel in other parts of your life. <laughs> <laughs> That, that those are the only things that are that are grounding you to the rest of society. Yeah, I'm, otherwise I'm just spinning out there with my cocoa van. You'd like... be out in Park Slope food co-op orbit. We would have lost <laughs> you completely. <laughs> all right. But it goes well with all the side dishes too. You can do all the traditional mashed potatoes, everything with it, and it's just much tastier than turkey.
So, Dan, I have a question. When next Thanksgiving rolls around and the food media gears up to do its thing, are you literally just going to ignore Thanksgiving or are you going to get on your soapbox at least long enough to to speak your piece again about having given up on it? I'm not sure. You know, we I got a lot of feedback from Sporkful podcast listeners who were bummed that we weren't going to do any more. Um, the part that they like the most is we, we've done this thing last year where we say, how do you know it's Thanksgiving in your house? And listeners send in voicemail recordings. And those are my favorite part. Those of the are wonderful. Too. Yeah. Because you hear about all the different traditions people have, and and oftentimes they end up being kind of surprisingly emotional. Like they start off like very mundane, and all of a sudden at the end you're like tearing up um, because you realize how much this seemingly meaningless tradition means to this person. And um, I would like to try to find a way to keep doing that, but I don't think that's a whole show. I like that though. That's what the culture of that's what the culture of Thanksgiving is: is weird personal traditions with weird meaning, recrimination, or otherwise attached to them. I mean that that feels like a honest way of covering the 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 food culture of Thanksgiving. All right, but how how could I build that into a whole thirty minute podcast episode? Uh, descriptive rather than prescriptive. I, I don't know, man. You're the producer. That's your problem. <laughs> You're the editor. <laughs> Not a podcast. <laughs> oh, and let me just add that this week on the Sporkful Podcast, my guest is you, Julia. It's a classic sporkful in which Julia holds forth about the ephemerality of the perfect muffin. It's true. Muffins, a good muffin is not what you think it is. Mm-hmm. So that episode's up now. I got to go listen to that again and make sure I still stand by all my views, but I believe I do. It's pretty good. It, it, it holds up. All right. Nice. <laughs> nice. Well, Dan, I guess we'll never have you in again to talk on this topic, but I hope you'll come in and talk about food in some other way with us in the near future because it's always great to have you. Thanks, guys. Happy Thanksgiving. Same to you. All righty. We've come to the part of the show where we endorse our favorite cultural product and or experience of the week. Steve, what have you got? That sounds a lot like va 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 actually. That joke really has gotten old, you saying my name in a funny way. Retire that. Okay, I have a couple things. One is that this is not a Tom Petty endorsement, but it's inspired by one, which is Patterson Hood, one of the co-founders of Drive-By Truckers, wrote what I thought was maybe the loveliest appreciation of Tom Petty, titled Like Sonny Liston. It's on a website called bittersouthener.com. You should absolutely check it out. I mean, he he just nails it about what what was great about Petty was that he was perfect, and he, he, he conduced to making perfect songs, and he just, it seems like a banality, but in fact, in the... Um, hands of Patterson Hood, it's it's taken someplace quite unbanal and where that perfection may have came from and it's it's just a wonderful piece of writing. And what it what it led me to do was listen finally, after having been told to do it for I mean what, ten, fifteen years, I finally listened to Drive by Truckers. And I I've had Drive by Truckers on mixed tapes or playlists or whatever for certainly for ten years, um, if not longer but just never, I just never comprehensively or intensively listen to them. Drive by truckers, is, and so many of our audience knows this already. They're a fucking amazing rock and roll band. I mean, like I always thought they were good, and I liked them, and I love people doing this kind of post Skinner Southern rock. Like blah blah, fuck that. They are terrific. Like they're incredible songwriters, incredible performers, incredible arrangers. Like they are, they are making great interesting, unexpected rock and roll. They they made so many good records, I hesitate to name any one of them, but 
you know, you'll find them, but uh, you can always email me and we'll bump emails back and forth. But if you love drive-by truckers and, and, and you think it's just like ridiculous how belated I am, you come to facebook.com slash culturefest and say that there, drop us an email or whatever. It's, uh, they're so good. Okay, can I add something to Steve's endorsement before I endorse? By all means. Okay, so uh, lovely Slate Culture Fest listener Deborah Mintz has brought a healing olive branch to our show by sending an email to culturefest at slate.com with the subject line, Dying to Know Steve. She writes, Hi, Steve. I don't think Julia or Dana will ever indulge you by asking. This is true, Deborah. Good guess. But I'm not proud, and I'm dying to know what is the super secret treasure of Columbia County. Can't wait to find out. Best Deborah Mintz. She does identify as a resident of Ghent, so possibly this is just a friend of yours you've put up to this, Steve, but um, for for being aware and writing such a kind note, at least let Deborah know what the top super secret treasure of Columbia County is. Okay, well, I, first of all, I've never met Deborah Mintz uh, in my life, I want to say for the record. Um, secondly, I emailed Deborah Mintz back, and I'm now going to read you my email. I said, hi, Deborah. Hmm. I'm concocting an insane scheme, and I'd like to know what you think of it. I think we should do a live gab fest at the super secret treasure. No one except me knows where or what it is going in. We all board buses, and it's a total surprise, even for Dana and Julia. Everyone signs an NDA before (laughs) getting on the bus. What do you think? And the wonderful Deborah Mintz, whom I've never met, says, I'm in, exclamation point, I'm mostly in the city during the week, but my schedule is flexible. Please keep me posted. I say we, I say we pitch it to the people at, at uh, Slate events. What do you say? Uh, he, just, he just wanted another opportunity to tease it again. God damn you, Deborah. <laughs> <laughs> Julia, I told you, just write it on your frickin' tombstone on the inside of your eyelids. Do not get in a battle of wills with a child. It was. It does remind me of something Carmel Wallace said on Mom and Dad Are Fighting last week, which is that in his first job ever working with children before he ever had children of his own, the boss or mentor or advisor there was like, if you are in an argument with one of the students, you have lost that argument. (laughs) (laughs) So true. All right. My question is withdrawn. And we'll never know. And Deborah Mintz. Who attempted to bring peace? What do you mean you'll never know? I'm not doing you a fucking live show the... at an undisclosed location. I'm taking you to the good place. I'm Ted Danson. <laughs> All right, we'll consider it off mic. All right, so what's your actual endorsement, Julia? Is it a real thing, or is it just something you're going to dangle and then yank away? No, I have a I have a real endorsement with an Amazon link attached to it. So, uh, my husband and I and our children have just discovered the perfect board game to play with children under seven or so. Actually, old. It's not a bad game if you're older than seven, but. If you have children who are of the age where the concept of friendly competition is difficult and like losing just sows unhappiness and discord. Uh, actually, Dana, I'd be curious. Maybe Dana will like this game. Um, I recommend Richard Scarry's Busy Town I Found It game with I spelled E-Y-E. It is a typographic mess, the title of this game. But here's the conceit of the game. There's this very elongated game board, uh, like it's probably, I don't know, five feet long or something like that, that has a pathway through a Richard Scarian world full of little pigs and cats driving crazy vehicles and all kinds of people going about their business. 
and you know all sorts of Richard Scarry paraphernalia. You all can picture Richard Scarry, yes. Oh my goodness, are you kidding me? Yeah. Lowly worm is my spiritual mascot. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this game, as I describe its gameplay, may sound like a craven capitulation to the everyone gets a trophy era. But the genius of it is you do not compete against the other players, the other beloved family members gathered for Thanksgiving. You compete against a bunch of ravenous fictional pigs. Uh, there is in the game an island that you're trying to get to. And on that island are a bunch of little like laminated cardboard foodstuffs like a ham and some watermelon or something like that. Um, and if you uh, you spin a dial to move your pieces along the board, but every so often you get like the pigs win thing. And if you get that, the pigs eat one of the pieces off the island. So your goal is to get to the island before the pigs eat the whole picnic so that you can enjoy the picnic, which means your enemy is not in the room with you. And you are, you know, going ahead, going behind with this or that. But to get to the island, you all need to get to the end of the pathway together. So you're kind of all rooting for each other to get to the end of the pathway. And you don't have the thing where if one four-year-old twin boy keeps spinning sixes and the other four-year-old twin boy keeps spinning ones, discord arises because everybody's rooting for everybody to get there. So that's nice. And then the game is interrupted every so often by a challenge to find it. So one of the pleasures of Richard Scarry books is finding gold bug on every page of cars and trucks and things that go. You know, he buries these little things you can, these little details that you can find all over the images. So one of the the modes of gameplay is find as many kites as you can on this five foot long board, find as many traffic cones, find as many hot dogs. Um, and you get little plastic eyeglasses and there's a timer and you all go find as many. And then however many you all collectively find, all of your pieces move forward by that much. So it's just a completely radical game redesign that makes you not be fighting with the people you're playing the game with. And yet the game is like challenging and fun and exciting and doesn't feel like a gigantic treacle pile. It is available for Amazon Prime. Not too late. You could order it today and have it in your home by Thanksgiving to entertain young tots strong recommend. Oh man, for the board alone, just just all the fun stuff going on in a Richard Scarry universe. I would be so curious if even Dana likes this game. I would wager that you would not hate this game. Oh, between my love for Richard Scarry scapes and uh, and non-zero sum competitions, I think I would love it. Yeah. All right. Well, that's my rec. I'm taking the unusual step this week of endorsing something I'm ambivalent about <laughs> because I want to hear what other people think of it. And uh, and I think that you'll get something out of it, whether or not you think it's a, a perfect work. So it's a documentary, a new documentary that's been released on Netflix. It's directed by Chris Smith, who directed American Movie, if you saw that documentary. And the title is Jim and Andy. It also has a very long and somewhat annoying subtitle, Jim and Andy, colon, The Great Beyond, featuring a very special contractually obligated mention of Tony Clifton. So what this movie is about is it's sort of a behind-the-scenes documentary about the making of, of Man on the Moon, which was this 1999 Milos Forman film about Andy Kaufman that starred Jim Carrey as Andy Kaufman, which was sort of mildly well-received. I think the performance was better received than the movie and it sort of sank out of sight. And I hadn't really thought about Man on the Moon since since it came out in 1999. But this director, Chris Smith, discovered this trove of backstage, behind-the-scenes footage during the shooting of Man on the Moon that's absolutely fascinating. Because Jim Carrey, who, if you have followed his career at all, you know is an eccentric, sort of strange personality in his own life, stayed in character as Andy Kaufman on set the entire time, which is, of course, a very unsettling and disturbing thing to do in and of itself staying in character, but especially if you're staying in character as this person who was sort of a disruptive force in entertainment and who got off on making people as uncomfortable as possible and his whole comedy derived from that. So 
Jim Carrey is walking around on set as Andy Kaufman, kind of planning these pranks and occasionally transforming himself into Tony Clifton, who is this kind of alter ego. I don't know what you'd call him, this kind of high rolling gambler alter ego that Andy Kaufman would occasionally play. And Jim Carrey is just essentially getting on everyone's nerves behind set, but is also kind of going deep into his creative process to find this character. And so you feel this strange combination of antipathy and sympathy for him. There's also current present day interviews with Jim Carrey wearing a long gray beard and talking in this somewhat hokey spiritual way about what playing that role meant to him. And then you get to see some of the backstage interactions with people like Paul Giamatti, who played Bob Zamuda, a close associate of Andy Kaufman in the movie. And it's all this strange kind of soup of thinking about what performance is, um, experiencing kind of cringe comedy on site, and uh, and also sort of experiencing the privilege of a performer who, at that point, Jim Carrey was an incredibly powerful comedian and could do anything he wanted. So even though he's disrupting the set and in some ways making it harder to make the movie... You're sort of with him in watching this act of creation. Anyway, the whole documentary is is quite strange. It's worth it for the trove of backstage footage. And if you like making of movies like I do, kind of making of featurettes on DVDs and things like that, you'll love that angle of it. I think there are some problems with the movie and that it doesn't really problematize these things I'm talking about. For example, the privilege of the star in the way that it should. So it's it's a documentary that leaves out things that you wish were in there. But the stuff that is there is so fascinating that I think it's worth it to watch just to grapple with those things. So Jim and Andy on Netflix. That sounds so interesting. I have to just very briefly tell the story of when I saw Man on the Moon. In college, I was in the habit of going to the second-run movie theater, Patriot Cinemas in Seekonk, Massachusetts, uh, where we would just, like, show up and watch whatever $2 movie was playing next. And so I saw that, like, not super intentionally one night. And, you know, it's interesting and good and goes along. And then, spoiler, I guess, for a movie from 1999, it is revealed that Andy Kaufman has cancer. And I think in my memory, he either has just heard the news or just told the news to uh, Giamatti's character um, and then the screen went black mm. and we were all like, oh man, I guess this movie just Kaufman us. <laughs> like, <laughs> I guess that's the end of the movie. Wow. Like what a radical Hollywood film. Like, holy crap. Like it was just 80 minutes long and then boom, <laughs> he's gone. And then like, we were all like, mm, murmur, 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 popcorn murmur. And then someone came out from Seacon and we're like, sorry, the projector broke. You guys all get vouchers <laughs> for like the next screening. <laughs> and so I've actually never seen the second half of that movie. But then my version of that movie, it just ends black. It's kind of the reverse of what actually happened with Sopranos, right? When this, when the yeah. the screen went black and everybody thought that they their TV had yes, gone out. Yes, I was prepared for the Sopranos by the misfired Seaconk screening of Man on the Moon <laughs> sometime in 1999. <laughs> Anyway, for that reason alone, I will uh, go back and check that out. Yeah, I'm very curious if you two do end up seeing it, um, what what you think of the movie in the end. I could I could imagine reviling this movie and thinking that it's, you know, kind of a terrible document, but it's it's full of some pretty interesting stuff. I and mean, that's just the thing about documentary. You care about what they make of it, but the raw the raw materials also can. Yeah, when you get a good treasure trove of footage, it's it's sort of hard to go wrong. All right, well, that was a, a show, guys. I I think we're done. Thanks thanks for coming into Gab. Thanks, Dana. Thanks for the emergency hosting. Anytime. Yeah. What a pleasure. All right. I'm off to go see a possible Oscar bait movie. So I'll talk to you all next week. What movie? The Shape of Water, the Guillermo del Toro film. Oh, I'm excited for that one. 
You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today on our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Join us at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest to talk about any of the topics we discussed. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at at slatecultfest. Uh, our intern is Daniel Schrader. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. For Stephen Dana, I'm Julia Turner. Thanks so much for joining us and happy Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving.